You're listening to On the Other Hand, bringing you different perspectives for everyday problems. I'm one of your hosts, Julia Meadows. For episode two, host Christopher Levan revisits themes he touched upon in our last episode, this time focusing on the personal side of xenophobia and hatred. The Charlie Effect, the anatomy of fear. Dictionary.com just announced its word for the year 2016. It's xenophobia. A big word meaning the hatred of foreigners, fear of people not like us. Well, you can call it xenophobia if you like. I'll call it the Charlie Effect. And it's coming home to roost this season. The Charlie Effect? What's that, you might ask? Let me explain. When I was 12, I was badly beaten by kids from the other side of town. I was sure Charlie had sent them. I couldn't prove it, but that didn't dispel my certainty. It happened on a snowy day in February. I was walking between schools. In those days, when the dinosaurs roamed the back alleys of my little southern Ontario city, boys had to take their class in industrial arts at the only woodworking shop in town at Central Elementary School. So we walked each week from the outskirts to this school that stood on the edge of the downtown. I traveled streets that were strange to me, and I was nervous. And maybe it showed, because on this particular day, when I was just two blocks from school, three kids started jeering at me. They were lounging on the veranda up ahead. Do you see them across the street? Their eyes are watching you, and you feel small and vulnerable. Then come their taunts. Nothing too serious or inventive. Hey, fatso! What's up, numbskull? Being a coward, I gritted my teeth, bowed my head, ignored their insults, and picked up my pace. Charlie fear was rising in my heart. Picture it. I'm all alone, and I'm frightened. I felt like a, a little mouse traversing a kitchen floor while the household cat watched. He's waiting, planning the pounce. And sure enough, it comes. One boy stands, then the second finally the third. He got up slowly and sauntered across the street to block my path. I tried to walk around him. I, I still hadn't said anything. Where do you think you're going? He sneered as he pushed me back into the arms of his two fellows that had just come up behind me. And before I could react, one of those two pushed me down. School books went flying to the left, my hat into the street. I could feel the ice-cold sidewalk on my cheek. Shocked and fearing that any resistance would earn me a kick or two, I lay prostrate and helpless. I did not protest. The one who blocked my path stepped forward. He put his black leather boots on either side of my head, gripped me tight, and then began jumping up and down, up and down. In between the thumping of the sidewalk, I could hear his friends laughing. It's strange, at the time I didn't feel pain, and each time my head went up, I could see my blood on the sidewalk. The hurt, well, it came later. Then it was over, as quickly as it had begun. Bullies tire of beating on someone who is so obviously their inferior, and these thugs gave up, walked back to their perch on the veranda, joking and kibitzing. I lay on the sidewalk, still paralyzed by fear. Miraculously, the bleeding stopped along with the beating. Nothing was broken except my trust in a safe universe. So in time, I slowly rose, dusted off my coat, grabbed my hat, and made my way to school. Did I report them? Call down fire and brimstone? I told no one. I was ashamed and beaten, but mostly I was frightened of Charlie.
You see, Charlie was the terror of my schoolyard. He lived down the hill from my house and was involved in a range of nondescript felonies. I never knew exactly what they were. Whispers of stealing bikes from the stand by the school and robbing candy bars from the variety store at the corner. Small crimes, but real nonetheless. He was bad news. And Charlie made it his business to inform every one of his classmates that we were chopped liver if we ever ratted on him. And none of us did. When we imagined the boogeyman under the bed or a monster in the closet, he was always called Charlie. Charlie would walk by our desks in class and scribble threats or expletives on our notebooks. Watch out, Fibber. Tattletales die. Damn. Shit. Ass. We never erased Charlie's words. He'd check to see if they were still there. Once I thought about telling on him when he hit my best friend's girl Cheryl and stole her Valentine cards. I thought about it. I pictured myself boldly stepping up to the teacher's desk and pointing a defiant finger at Charlie across the room. I thought about it. I, I never did it. But I was sure as sure as any young man can be, that Charlie knew that I didn't like or trust him. He could feel who was a traitor to his cause. I was not on his team and never invited into his circle, and he knew it. And even though the three boys who beat me up probably didn't even know Charlie, I immediately saw their actions as part of his plan. The Charlie Empire of Fear stretched across the city and orchestrated my beating. The how was beyond my comprehension. The why was obvious. He knew I was against him. And since that incident, I harbored dreams of hitting back, making those bullies pay. They'd feel my pain. I never discussed it with my friends because I felt stupid and cowardly for not fighting. But I was ready to pay them back. The beating that day taught me two things I wish I had not learned. First, the world is not trustworthy. And second, strangers are dangerous. Those who are not part of my circle are against me and will hurt me. I learned fear of the other. You call it xenophobia. I think I'll stick with the Charlie effect. In the last month since the election of Donald Trump, we've witnessed a rise in the Charlie effect, a manifestation of very frightening animosity towards difference. This fear of strangers is a process. It's not born full-blown. It is a learned response and grows from personal insecurity, from childhood trauma or a teenage crisis. It begins with hateful words flung at them someone who is not us, and then it escalates. Baruch Friedman Cole, senior rabbi at Toronto's Beth Zedek Synagogue, said recently that his Jewish communal institutions are on the alert. He pointed out, quotes, the Holocaust didn't begin with people being killed. It began with words that accelerated into hate speech, that became amplified into acts of vandalism, and then it became large-scale violence. And indeed, this escalation seems to have happened in Ottawa in November when sometime during the evening of November 17th, vandals sprayed swastikas on the front doors of Parkdale United Church along with slurs against race and references to Adolf Hitler. 
In a similar fashion and on the same night, the front doors of the Ottawa Muslim Association were defaced with derogatory symbols and the words, Go Home. And in what looks like a spree of hatred, the side walls of the congregation Maxekai Hadas were likewise vandalized. Ahmed Ibrahim summarized the event. Speaking for the Ottawa Muslim Association, he called the graffiti, quotes, very bad, very scary. It's hate, it's just hate. The graffiti is telling me, go home. But this is my home. Canada and Ottawa is my home. It's a Jewish group's home. It's the Christians' home. It's our home, end quotes. Are we already well down the rabbit hole of xenophobia? To reverse the trend, we can begin to examine the sources and dynamics of our fear of the other. What is the anatomy of xenophobia, and how is it that Charlie grabs hold of us so well? Here's a quick five-point checklist dissecting our fear of difference. First, fear of the stranger arises in concert with a lack of personal power, authentic, real power. When we feel inauthentic, small, having no center or sense of self or meaning, we blame someone else for our vulnerability. We feel weak inside and we funnel our insecurity into shaming. Pointing a finger at those who are different, we proclaim, they did it to me. They are to blame for my poor state. Privately, in the quiet of the night when I'm totally honest with myself, if I can be that frank, I know I'm a fraud. And the fear of being found out fuels my aggression even more. Publicly, I boast and I strut to prove to myself and others that the roaring emptiness inside is not real. Second, fear of the other feeds on a simplistic binary worldview. Indeed, it, it creates it. Nuance and subtlety are an anathema. The world is black and white, don't you know? It's us against them. You're either for us or against us. Anyone who argues for finer distinctions is a sellout, a hopeless intellectual, and biased. Donald Trump's success has been attributed to his ability to ride a wave of what he called common sense. In an excellent article on Trump, Mariah Vagel pointed out that, in quotes, in August 2016, after saying that the U.S. District Judge Gonzalo Curiel of Santiago was unfit to preside over the lawsuit against Trump universities because he was Mexican-American and therefore likely to be biased against him, Trump told CBS News that this was common sense, end quotes. He continued, quotes, we have to stop being so politically correct in this country, end quotes. Can you hear that? That's xenophobia, disguised as straight talk. Third, the rise in animosity against the foreigner is like a boiler set under the vocabulary of every segment of society. Public discourse is bubbling. We're all feeling the heat and have turned up the volume of our rhetoric. I was shocked last week when in a circle of people opposed to the hatred of strangers promoted by white supremacists, we ourselves indulged in our own hate speech against those very people whom we deem to be prejudiced, racist, misogynist, and homophobic. It's as if we have all been trapped willy-nilly in a battle stations mentality, and the public realm is our combat zone. Fourth, 
The rise in our fear of the other shuts doors and closes hearts, even among those who so desperately want to keep things open. If we think of public discourse like a concerto, we have shifted from a major to a minor key, and that changes everything. We're no longer buoyed by a general acceptance of a positive, hopeful key signature. The times are soured, and with that comes a natural and understandable guardedness. Women who once felt empowered are reacting with fear and pulling back. Gay couples stop holding hands. Interfaith dialogue becomes self-conscious and fumbling. Finally, xenophobia thrives on our silence and inaction. Hedman Burke got it right. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. Charlie made me afraid, pushed me into shame, where I felt not only humiliated, but helpless, vulnerable, and alone. What can one person do, I said. That became my escape clause. And it is understandable if we heave a collective sigh and give in, allowing Trump and his xenophobia to take the stage and the presidency without protest. It's understandable. On the other hand, perhaps we can immunize ourselves against this contagion. The fear of strangeness and strangers can be reversed. I think immediately of the advice offered by Robert Fulgram. In his marvelous book, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, he summarizes 16 life lessons that are taught in our first elementary class, and number 13 is noteworthy when confronting xenophobia. He writes, when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Watch out for traffic. That means be aware of the dangers of this world. No pretending, no putting your head in the sand. Stay alert and watchful for that which disrupts the natural flow of love and justice. It may look chaotic, and our first job is to face and name the dangers on all sides. Hold hands. The antidote to fear of strangeness is to hold tight to those whom we love, and we will discover that in a group we have the power to resist those who would make us afraid, who would have us blame someone else. Finally, stick together. Our role in this world is not to divide and conquer, to point at the strangeness of others as reason to build walls, make distinctions. In this season of light, it is time to recognize in this world that the things that unite us are so much stronger and more important than that which divides us. In 2014, Dictionary.com claimed that the word of the year was exposure, the condition of being exposed to danger or harm. We all remember the Ebola crisis, when the world banded together to protect the most vulnerable from exposure. It is indeed a tragedy that in 2016, we chose to respond to our fears by blaming others rather than joining hands in solidarity. For, on the other hand, this is Christopher Levan. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Other Hand. If you would like to listen to our previous episodes as well as be notified when new ones come out, remember to visit our Facebook page where we post links to SoundCloud. We would love to read your comments, so don't forget to give us your thoughts. Speaking of the Facebook page, we would like to thank everyone that has liked the page recently. We are overjoyed at the response we have received thus far, and thank you for your support. Once again, this was Episode 2 of On the Other Hand. Thank you.